Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, April twenty eighth episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us on SoundCloud, Instagram, as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at the upper right-hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Our poet guest of the week is Rosaura Magana. If that name sounds familiar, that's because she and her bookstore Palabras Bookstore was recently featured on KJZZ. You can find the link to the article in the episode notes. Before I give you the lineup of the poetry events taking place during the week of April 29, I want to let you know that both Rosaura and myself will be featuring at. The Her Museum's second Saturday Books Beats Bite event on May 11th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So please come and say hi to us and I, as well as two other poets whom I had the pleasure of interviewing on Poets and Muses, will also be reading at the Her Museum event from 1 to 2 p.m. Now let's see what exciting poetry events the Valley has on offer during the week of April twenty ninth. On Monday, April twenty ninth, from five to ten p.m., Savannah Lutman and Phoenix Firebird Events will be hosting its Forever Firebird Charity Open Mic Series. For the next four weeks, the series will be featuring a nonprofit each week, for which all the proceeds will benefit. This will take place at Thirdspace at 1028 Grand Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up for the event should take place between 3 and 6:30 p.m. On Tuesday, April 30th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center, which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 6:30 to 9:30 p.m. Nocturnal, the poet, and the poor people's campaign will be hosting its monthly "The Art of Justice" open mic and art show at First Church, which is at 1407 North Second Street in Phoenix. The entrance is at the parking lot on the back of the church. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 6 p.m. From 7 to 10 p.m., Richard Nyhill will be hosting his weekly "I Am Hologram" open mic. At Irene's Tap Room, which is at 1227 East Northern Avenue in Phoenix, signing up to get on the mic starts at 6:30 p.m. From 8 to 11 p.m., King Kong will be hosting his weekly The Underground Experience at 2601 on Central, which is at 2601 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7:30. On Thursday, May second, from seven to nine p.m., Long Known Publishing will be hosting its weekly Phoenix Poetry Slam at the Lost Leaf, which is at nine fourteen North Fifth Street in Phoenix. Make sure to get there by six fifty to participate. From eight to eleven p.m., Quinton Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Joba Coffee and Bar, which is at three thirty three East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7:30 on First Friday, May 3rd, from 6:30 to 9:30 p.m. 
Rosemary Dombrowski will be hosting her monthly poetry on Roosevelt Row, which takes place on the back porch of Local First Arizona. This is at 407 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. From 7 to 9 p.m., Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe will also be hosting its first Friday poetry open mic featuring David Shorten at 6428 South McClintock Drive in Tempe. On Saturday, May 4th, from 7 to 9.30 p.m., Daughter of Zen will be hosting her monthly first Saturday open mic at the Black Cat Coffee House, which is at 4730 East Indian School Road, Suite 120 in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. And now we're going to turn to our poet guest of the week, Rosaura Magana. Hi, Rosaura. Thank you for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you for having me. Of course. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Rosaura Magana. I am born and raised in Arizona, so I'm an Arizona native. My parents are from Mexico, so I'm first-generation Mexican-American. I own a local bookstore called Palabras Bilingual Bookstores, so we have books in both Spanish and English and some bilingual titles as well. And I write a little bit of poetry, too. Yeah, you do. And you brought us today a poem that's inspired by your name, which is called Rosaura Magana, right? Yep. Great. Would you like to read that? Sure. So, Rosaura Magana, con la gaña, de Malamaña who plays Zapatito Blanco in Dusty Shoes and was Rosora in kindergarten, then renamed by a well-meaning white woman in first grade, transformed from Rosaura, meaning Rosa de Oro, Rose of Gold, to Rosie, a feminine given name of English origin historically popular for infants in England and Wales during the 21st century, and in Victorian times, then again in a classroom at Flora Thu Elementary School in the early 1990s. Yes, it's Rosie, not like Rosie O'Donnell, Rosie Perez, or anything but a label built to make life easier for others. But this name also saves me from, I'm sorry, how do you say it? Rosora, that's a lovely name. Or Rosada, which in Spanish means having a rash. And oh gosh, I'm not even going to try. From then on, neither of us tried. I was Rosie. I always wondered how Rosaura plays out when seen on a resume. Oh geez, what's this? Mexican? Might not call this one. Maybe she has a nickname. No one calls me Rosaura anymore. I write it down on applications, tax documents, contracts, leases, loans. But is La Rosa de Oro even real anymore? Is she just a myth? conjured up by my mother's lips. Did she even exist? In school, they took her name, her history, and her language. Can she really be real anymore if no one says her name? That change can't be good, Rosaura, to Rosie. It sounds like a glittering flower in full bloom, abruptly shriveling into a tiny red dot. It's like the evolution of women gone backwards and reverted into a little belly button a tortellini-like thing to be devoured in one foul bite. Rosaura, I say sometimes, trying to speak myself to life. It sounds awkward, foreign. Then I realize that I just thought of her, Rosaura, me, I mean, as a foreigner. My name echoes at my mother's grave, 
and in old picture frames, and in exhausting dreams where I'm running from a past I never felt like I had. Rosaura, the little girl who stayed home with her mama teaching the Vietnamese boy her mother babysat a third language. Rosaura, the one whose parents were yelling for her to get in before dark. Rosaura, the kid who learned her first Pepito story and was scolded for reciting it in front of a tia. Rosaura, the girl who loved her name and repeated it over and over to her kindergarten teacher, Ms. O, who tried to get rid of her by placing her in ESL when little Rosaura already knew English, just because Ms. O didn't want to have to call Rosaura by her name. But Rosaura claimed her name to Ms. O. It's Rosaura! It's Rosaura! Rosaura! Until her little voice cracked, cracked and faded into Rosie. But after all these years, she's returning. That little voice is louder now. Can you hear her? Can you hear me? ¿Me puedes oír? Rosaura. 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 Say it. Rosaura. Call me. Rosaura. Thank you for reading that to us. Thank you. This is a biographical poem, is that right? Yes, it is. Before we get into it, for personal reasons as well as for enlightening our listeners, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the terms that I, I didn't quite understand. From the beginning, after you said your name, Rosara Magaña, then you say con la gaña de mala mania. What does that mean? You know how kids are. They mm -hmm. uh, come up with things to rhyme. Right. <laughs> that might not be the most flattering, and it's funny. <laughs> con la gaña. La gaña is like eye boogers. You know, you have sleep in your eyes. That's oh, what la gaña okay. is. And it happens to rhyme with my last name, Magaña. Mm -hmm. Mala mania. The mala mania means like of bad habits. That means you have bad habits. Okay. So Rosaura Magaña con la gaña de mala mania. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when you say who plays Zapatito Blanco in dusty shoes, it really conjures up uh, beautiful imagery. At the same time, I was wondering what is Zapatito Blanco, actual the actual name of the game um yeah so it's very similar it's exactly the same to have you ever played like to figure out who's going to be it when you play tag oh, okay. you do bubblegum bubblegum in a dish no no I <laughs> so well this is the spanish version of that game so all you do is you know it would be like bubblegum bubblegum in a dish how many pieces do you pick and then the person counts around a circle and counts each person until they get to whatever number they picked, and then that person's out, and they just keep playing the game until they get to the final person who's going to be it. Okay. Zapatito Blanco, translated, is Little White Shoe. Mm -hmm. The same concept. They sing the song, they go around, they ask them the number until they're out of the game. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. I say I play Zapatito Blanco, and I say in dusty shoes because of the contrast between the name of the game, yeah. Zapatito Blanco and Dusty Shoes. Yeah, it's a really beautiful imagery, that one. Later on when you say Rosaura, the kid who learned her first Pepito story and was scolded for reciting it in front of a tia, what is a Pepito story? So yeah, that kind of chimes in another cultural element. Kids are taught these stories from each other and it's just <laughs> like a generational thing. Pepito is this 
fictional character that's just this bad kid who's always doing bad things. And so the stories usually have adult type of content to them, a lot of bad <laughs> words, and little kids <laughs> learn them and recite them to each other. Okay. So, yeah, that's why I'm getting scolded for, for my tia hearing me recite this Pepito story. Right. <laughs> when you look back, it must have been a really fond memory to look back on but when you were living it. <laughs> a little bit... A little bit uh, harsh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely shouldn't have been talking like that <laughs> in front of my aunt, no. First curse words, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So going back to the entire poem, as I was asking before, this come from a biographical story. Can you tell us about the story behind the poem? What made you decide to write it? What made me decide to write it was just my experience growing up with my name. Mm-hmm. You know, I went into school, and before school, I was Rosaura, or I was Chawa, which is the nickname for Rosaura, you know? Mm-hmm. Like how people named Richard are called Dick, so for Rosaura, it would be Chawa. Mm-hmm. Going into kindergarten, my teacher didn't like the fact that she was going to have to pronounce Rosaura because she couldn't pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want my name to be changed. And I remember mm-hmm. the feeling of just like this confrontational experience of someone almost, not almost, but really kind of denying who I am. Mm-hmm. And that evolved into first grade with my first grade teacher who then gave me a name to replace that name. In her mind, she was making it easier for me. Mm-hmm. That's why I say she was a, a well-meaning woman, right? Mm-hmm. As a kid, you're used to saying your own name, so it's not really for you, is it? Yeah. And as time progressed, you know, you adapt to the culture. Like I said, I'm first-generation Mexican-American, so I'm around my immediate family until I get to the environment school. Mm-hmm. And you don't really notice the fact that what is happening is kind of a death of your culture to acclimate to what is considered quote-unquote American society. You know, Mm. we all have to get into this melting pot and it for some reason has to be the same exact mold. Mm. And as time has gone on... it's not a Mexican mold. (laughs) It's not a Mexican mold. Ironically, in what used to be Mexico... Yeah, (laughs) very ironically. It's a very good point. So yeah, I've been struggling with that. And as I've become more conscious and aware of my experiences, a lot through poetry, I've been wanting to go back to being called Rosaura again, hence this poem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when you read it, that's when I knew you as Rosie. And when you read the poem, it was like, Rosaura, it's not, I mean, I may not be pronouncing it beautifully or (laughs) even correctly, but we can at least try it, right? Yeah, and that's a good point. Like, it doesn't matter. Everyone's trying, at least, to pronounce your name. Why not do it? There's no reason to think that you have to make life easier for other people and adjust who you are. It's, a, it's your title. It's a big piece of who you are. Yeah. There's some English names that are not... They don't readily roll off the tongue. Something like Rosamond. <laughs> yeah. Also, that you have to get used to hearing because it's not of this generation that people get used to saying if you just say it. If you just say it often enough, it's still sad. I mean, this is in the 90s, as you said. So yeah. it's, I was only 
20 years ago. So Yeah, and I mean, it still happens to this day yeah. where I know friends who have kids and have adjusted their children's name to make it easier for them in school or let them be called by a different name. I mean, it's still, it's still a thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think when we were talking about this poem previously, I had mentioned to you that I also have an Asian name, but I prefer not to tell people that name because it's very difficult for people to pronounce it, even Asian people. So Yeah, so you can relate totally, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's from a different perspective because I'm the one who don't really want to share unless I know. If people ask, I would tell them and... If people try, I would tell them how to pronounce it, but invariably people fail. And and that's to Asian people who speak the language as well. So I'm not being forced to give up that name, necessarily. I didn't have your experience where I had that name and people refused to use it. Whereas this is where teachers, people who are supposed to teach you right from wrong, deciding that somehow your heritage or this name you got from your heritage is not good enough for them. And they're just not going to bother. In your poem, you describe from really heart-wrenching aspects, like when Miss O tried to put you in ESL class. Can you, do you want to speak about what that felt like? It felt like I wasn't wanted because she knew that I knew how to speak English. I have an older brother and sister who are constantly speaking English because it's like our code so our parents don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) So I was very, I knew English very well. And so to put me in a class that I knew I didn't belong in was a really hurtful action on her part. And I don't know if she was aware of the damage she was doing emotionally to, you know, a young child. Mm-hmm. And this is the same person who changed your name to Rosie? No, that was my kindergarten teacher was Ms. O. And okay. then my first grade teacher changed my name, okay. Mrs. Fitch. <laughs> okay. Wow, wow. So from what you said before, since kindergarten, basically since go into the public school system, right? Yeah, since okay. public school wow. system, exactly. Wow. Yeah, that's really, really sad, really disappointing, isn't it? It is really disappointing. And it kind of lends itself to the entire experience of going through school. Mm -hmm. In a line I say, not only losing my name, but losing my history and losing my language. In that way, it kind of erases you because the books that I was reading, you know, the Babysitter's Club, that wasn't my cultural experience, right? (laughs) um, Sweet Valley High with these beautiful blonde, blue-eyed women on the cover and they're having, you know, what's considered the American experience growing up and being a teenager. But it didn't really speak to my experience, right? And Mm -hmm. so I had nothing to validate who I am. And that lends itself to why I decided to start the bookstore too. Like that explains exactly it because it does affect a person not being able to see themselves in the books they read growing up. Right. And so I have like this very large kids section of books that are not only in English, but are bilingual or in Spanish and come from a diverse set of authors that are telling a diverse set of stories. And we should be trying to learn about everyone. Right, right. And you are in between two cultures where you're not strictly Mexican. I don't know if you had this experience where maybe Mexicans from Mexico look at you and don't think of you as Mexican. Oh, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And then in America, your your European-Americans don't look at you as American. Or, or maybe some other Americans don't look at you as American just because of your Mexican heritage. It's a very strange 
place to be, right? In it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, I have another poem titled Somewhere in the Middle that talks <laughs> about that because I wasn't Mexican enough. I remember, like, in middle school specifically, I wasn't Mexican enough to hang out with the Mexican girls because they were all fawning over this boy who played soccer and was just, like, the cutest guy, according to them. And... <laughs> They knew all these songs all in Spanish. My Spanish, you know, came out like a crooked tooth. It just wasn't oh. <laughs> like the best Spanish because, you know, I was acclimating to the culture I was in and mm -hmm. I was taught to only speak English in school. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't totally fit into that group. I didn't totally fit into the Chicana girls group because they were more of a rough and tumble group that, you know, didn't think I was cool enough, I guess. And then I didn't fit into the group that I really, like, had fun with, which was these really nerdy girls who went to camp every year together, and they would write, like, little mock plays, and mm -hmm. they realized that I couldn't afford to go to their pizza parties or go to their camp. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I was kicked out of their group. So I was like, oh, I wow. never fit into any single group. Yeah. But you can see the layers uh, of culture. And then, of course, the class system that comes into play with that. Too. Yes, yes. As you mentioned, the economic class system, as well as ethnic and sometimes religious as well. All of these different intersectionalities. Yeah. It's hard enough to find our place in the world, right? And then you add all these other elements that living in America as non-European Americans can bring. Yeah, I, I feel, yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I've had that experience as well, where you're not enough of one particular thing, no matter which group you go to. <laughs> it's just not good enough. But coming full circle, going through all my experiences, especially with the project of the bookstore, it's really helped me to open up and re-examine, you know, who am I? And Mm -hmm. The objective is just to be authentically you, and right. the people who stick around are going to be the people that should be around. Yeah, people who appreciate you for who you are. Right. Yeah. It's great that you have the store that you did. You said it's the only bilingual bookstore in Phoenix, is that right? It is the only bilingual bookstore in the state of Arizona. In the state of Arizona, wow. Yes. It's uh, really hard to believe, isn't it, given how many languages there are actually being spoken in Phoenix. I know Phoenix is quite cosmopolitan in many ways. There's a lot of international people here. Right. There's, yeah. according to, I think, like 2010 census, that 30% of the population in Phoenix are native Spanish speakers. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of Spanish-speaking people out there, and Spanish is the second most spoken language on the planet yeah. <laughs> so it's something good for everybody to learn yeah and it's good to have around a community that, in which you have a lot of hispanic people so it helps people also reconnect through their culture through language too true true and learning a second language just for health reasons is really great for the brain it helps people to look at things from different perspectives and it also helps in terms of I think both prevention as well as to slow down the progress of something like Alzheimer's because it helps different sections of the brain to connect with each other and override the damages that certain brain diseases like Alzheimer's do. So we need to learn to speak different languages not only to reach out to people from different backgrounds which is the root of America but also for our own health. 
Right. There's a health aspect to it, too. You're making it much more flexible and memory retention and all these different aspects of brain health come into play. I mean, that's nice that science is backing up. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the reason to learn other languages. Not just Spanish, you should be learning other languages, too. Yeah. I tried French, but that <laughs> didn't really stick. <laughs> but I'm going to try again. Yeah, there are some French groups. and I know there's a bunch of Spanish groups in, in Phoenix and around in the valley as well. So there are definitely opportunities to pick up different languages if you have the inclination to. So people, for your own health, if nothing else, yeah. <laughs> do it. Pick up another language. Let's go back to you before we do more public health announcements. <laughs> Again, going back to your imagery, you have these beautiful imagery that you talk about in between narrating the biographical aspect of this story poem. The part where you're saying it sounds that change can't be good, Rosalda to Rosie, it sounds like a glittering flower in full bloom abruptly shrivel into a tiny red dot. It's like the evolution of woman gone backwards and reverted into a little belly button, a tortellini-like thing to be devoured in one foul bite. Do you mind to dissect that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> the imagery comes from, well, I start off with the glittering flower in full bloom because what it means is rosa de oro. You know, a rose of gold. But Rosie is just this short, sweet thing that mm. I describe like where the name originates from. Right. You know, it's really a name given to a child mm-hmm. in Europe. Right. But, it's a diminutive. Yeah, it's it's diminutive in a sense. That's why it feels like my evolution going backwards. Mm. And the tortellini thing, the to be devoured in one foul bite, I feel like there's something behind that particular line. I just had the image of a tortellini-like thing because it reminds me of a belly button. Mm-hmm. And it went with being consumed, the thought of consumption. Right. Yeah, in some ways, that's what she was doing to you. Yeah, so I was being consumed as this thing that is now American. Mm. Yeah. Then a couple of stanzas afterwards, you had talked about my name echoes at my mother's grave and in old pictures frames and in exhausting dreams where I'm running from a past. I wonder when I was reading that line, are these dreams figurative or are these real dreams? They're both. They're mm-hmm. figurative and they're, and they're real. I know I've had a lot of dreams where there's a lot of cultural elements and I used to have a lot of dreams where I was running from those. Images, really? yeah. Do you still have them now that you have your bookstore that you're basically investing your identity in? You know, I haven't had them in a while, in a long time. It's probably been at least a few years. Okay. Yeah. Wow, it's really interesting. I like how you're, as your life progressed and as you basically reclaimed your identity, and the poem follows that timeline as well because you end on wanting to be heard, wanting to be recognized and appreciated as yourself. I'm guessing these are deliberate choices. What is your process? Do you let your brain just go stream of conscious or do you deliberately plant out this aspect of the ending or any poem? Actually, I go stream of conscious, but I go on one particular image and elaborates from there. Okay. So I didn't know where this poem was going to end when I started it, but it was the feeling of that experience mm-hmm. that initiated it. Right, right. And I guess you wanted to end on a more a statement saying, I want to be appreciated. 
And so call me by that name. And this is kind of calling out into your present and into the future, right? Right. So you know how sometimes poetry pushes us into the places that we've been meaning to go, but we're too afraid to go. Yeah. So this poem is one of those for me, being able to make that statement of this is who I am. I'm Rosaura. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and say Rosaura, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it was going to end that way, but that's really what I ended up feeling. And it felt good that I'm now in this space where I can embrace my name and in that act as, as embrace myself for who I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a wonderful ending and it gives people hope and a point of aspiration as well for people who are not quite in your shoes yet. They haven't arrived to the point where they're saying, no, no, I want to be appreciated for who I am. So it's a beacon. Thank you. I want to also ask you, since we talked a little bit about your process, you had mentioned in the beginning that you were writing some poem. What made you decide to turn toward poetry? You write in other forms as well? I write short stories as okay. well. Okay. I'm probably more of a fiction writer than a poet, I okay. think. Okay. Yeah. Did I hear you correctly that you're starting to dive more into poetry? And, and what made you decide to do that? What really made me decide to do that was I was inspired by the people who were coming into the open mics that we have at the bookstore mm -hmm. and feeling really inspired by their poetry. And so it really motivated me to start working in that shorter format. In many ways, poetry can be so much more difficult than writing a story because mm -hmm. you have limited space in which to do it. Right. And every word matters. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is that, a lot of condensations. It's like a concentrate. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the events, I met you at Pocket to Me. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yes. The Pocket Pocket to me stands for POC, so it's a POC open mic night that I co-host with a volunteer of mine, her name's Yola, and it's basically any type, it doesn't just have to be poetry, it could be short stories, it could be music, it could be comedy, it could be just about any sort of creative expression, and that happens every third Saturday of the month from 6.30 to 9pm at Palabras. Okay, great. And it's a wonderful event. It brings out diverse voices. Um, I've attended that. I, I really appreciate that. And it's also similar to your story of not wanting to be limited by how people see us, rather to want to be appreciated for who I am, that I wrote my poem and I brought my poem here for this particular episode, which is called Confinement. I'm going to read that now. Confinement. This soil gave me life, but it doesn't define me. This air gives me breath, but it doesn't define me. My heritage gives me pride, but it doesn't confine me. Though I benefit from its culture, I contributed nothing to its fame. My thoughts hone my path. My actions paint my character. My successes and failures give my personality its dimensions that my parents' genes sketched. So don't let your eyes trick you into believing that what you see can box me in because I have no obligation to cater to your lack of imagination. I owe myself to chisel my own course in life. If that is too unfamiliar a road for you, then please find your own way but do not block my advancement 
because you cannot make out the lines that you need to constrict you within. After reading this, you know, the thing that I thought was like, this is my poem, but like the opposite of my poem. You're talking about your heritage, it gives you pride, but you're not in the box of what your culture is. Mm -hmm. You identify with it, Mm -hmm. but it's not everything that makes who you are. You make who you are. You create yourself, and you are beyond all of these labels, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really beautiful sentiment. Thank you. What motivated you to write this poem in the first place? It was a frustration because I'm Asian, and I can't escape this look. Yeah, I can't I, I can't pass for any other race than what I am. There's this constant association in America that's actually spread abroad as well. Where if you're Asian American you're looked upon as somehow you cannot be American. And I've had a lot of people who's done the stereotypical, oh where where are you from? No, no, where do you are you from? Where are your parents from? <laughs> where are you yeah. really from? Yeah, where are you really from? <laughs> You know, like, as if I'm lying to them when I say, oh, no, you know, America, or whatever city I say. And it comes from that generally. But specifically, it was because I had an encounter with a fellow writer of another ethnic group who, after me telling her that I had only been in the Phoenix area for a little while, asked me to give her a restaurant recommendation based yeah. on my ethnicity. Oh. <laughs> and... And I had this back and forth with her where I'm trying to be very, very calm and very understanding and basically said, well, hey, what happens if somebody asks you to recommend something based on your ethnicity, even though you just told them you just moved to someplace? And she was like, well, you know, I know the good restaurants of this other place, which she doesn't live in right now. And I was just thinking, okay, I just, I just went over your head. <laughs> and so it's really out of a lot of frustration of people confining me according to what they see, what they think they should associate with the way I look. And I've spoken with some poets for the podcast specifically where they're telling me, well, I don't want to be a representation for my ethnic group. And I can understand that because just because our respective ethnic groups might have experienced oppression or prejudice, bigotry, sometimes on a daily basis, doesn't mean this is the life we want to live. Doesn't mean we want others, through their prejudice, to define who we can be. We still live our own lives. We still have some freedom of choice. That's why I wrote it from that voice to say, well, all of these things. And you notice I didn't say my heritage right away, but I talk about all the things that make me me including the soil, including air, which people don't think about, right? Yeah, I was, that was my next question. When you wrote that line, the soil gave me life, but it doesn't define me, the air gives me breath. What exactly do you mean by the soil and the air not defining you? Well... Do you mean, like, where you are? Partly is the soil on which I was born. Oh, okay. Also partly because we eat things that come from the soil either directly or indirectly. And our intake of food nutrients also make us who we are, make us capable of certain things if we eat other things that we might not be capable of doing. And without air, we would be dead. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. 
And so both of them, whether directly or indirectly, influence who we are or what we can be, what we're capable of doing, depending on which altitude you live at. You have to adjust to that. And those, again, are things that people don't think about. Yeah, definitely. And just to compare and contrast between the two of our poems, because they are so different. And you were mentioning about, you know, the way that you look. So people write you off initially. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I don't know, I can't get to the root of exactly why we have this, this different experience. But for you, it's like, you're obviously Asian. People look at you, they feel, okay, this is an Asian woman, right? And they look at me, I'm lighter skinned. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have features that some people which is ridiculous because there are Asians in Mexico, there are black people in Mexico, there are just every, it's a, it's a melting pot too, and it mm-hmm. has a lot of history through colonization and all of that as well. Right. So, but they do put you in a box and they define you. For me, it's more of like, this is who I am, because you can't really tell who I am. I want you to know who I am. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm passing, and I can easily just jump into another world if I want to, but mm-hmm. I'm choosing not to be part of that. For you, you're always put into the box of your culture and exactly who you are, because in a way, you don't have the privilege that I have of being, I could possibly be anything, right? Mm-hmm. And people have told me I look Turkish, or I look this or that. Yeah, you could pass from Mediterranean. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> people of different Asian backgrounds have guessed that I was part of their in-group, or I'm not. So in a limited sense, I can pass as well. But when Americans see me, especially European Americans, but Americans in general, and also even abroad, when people ask me where I'm from, and I'm saying, I'm American, and they're like, no, no, where are you really from? <laughs> like, you know, America is not... European Americans, all kinds of, so many different colors, so many different shades, so many different bone structures, so many possibilities. You can almost guess anybody is American, and you could be right, or you could be totally wrong. I mean, it's just, we encompass so many cultures because we are an immigrant culture, unless you are specifically thinking First Nation American, then Ironically, they look East Asian. So that's the irony of it. So I'm like, hey, why don't I pass for a Native American? You know, right. something like that. So there's definitely a confinement of imagination or the lack thereof, which I talk about in the poem, that people just think their self definition of America or Americanism doesn't include somebody who looks like. And like your poem, it's a rejection of who you are because they can't think past, oh, this is it. This is what America means. And it's a very narrow definition. Yeah, so I guess it comes back to the same point of what defines an American. Yeah, yeah, it does. And as the decades pass, I'm hoping that you know more and more people realize that's a very open definition. Yeah, well, they're going to have to because... <laughs> You know, we're all going to be here, so it's inevitable. And we've been here for a a long time, and Asian Americans have been here for generations. And we were brought here, too, not as forcefully as African Americans, but certain segments were brought here to break the unions. 
certain, I know Bangladeshi Americans tend to have come here maybe like in the 80s, I think, because America was needing certain, I think, science workers, if I remember correctly. And so a lot of Americans from different cultural backgrounds come because they were called to be here and they were brought here through incentive programs. And even now, speaking of a certain segment of Mexican-American population, they're brought here because they're needed as workers. Obviously, it's not a uniform. We forget that there are other Mexican-Americans who come from different classes, who come. There is a stream of migration. It's never stopped. It might become a larger stream. It might become a smaller stream, according to the times, according to geopolitics. But it's never stopped. It's hard to kind of trace a real beginning sometimes. Especially, I, I think, in Mexican-American case, because as I said before, this used to be Mexico. Right. <laughs> and it was indigenous land before that. Um, there are parts of the U.S. that pass through four different, let's say, national identities, for lack of a better word. So, you know, why is it that we only define America as European America? And it doesn't even include the indigenous people who's been here for tens of thousands of years. We have to think about that and we have to deliberately reframe that. And it was very intentional creating a country that was really defined by white America. Mm -hmm. Population control, letting certain people come in at certain times, having all those rules in place in order to create a more American as expressed as a white American society. And you think about you know, Native Americans being put into boarding schools, yeah. forced into boarding schools, ripped away from their families, the trauma of all these experiences. One of the phrases that they had on top of one of the boarding schools was, kill the Indian, save the man. Imagine going into school every day and looking at that. You know? Right, right. So there has been this very obviously intentional act of whitewashing that we should all be aware of because history has a tendency to repeat itself. If we're not going to be conscious about it, then we're going to keep repeating ourselves. So I think a lot of people are taking note of that and are speaking truth, and I think that's when we stop becoming victims. Sometimes I hear people, usually white people, I work in a very corporate setting, so sometimes I hear people talk about it, but, oh, they think of themselves as victims. There's this victimization role because (laughs) this stuff happened in the past. They don't understand that it's affecting life now and it's very much still happening just in other ways that may not be as visible. Mm -hmm. But if you're a person of color, then they are visible because you're experiencing them firsthand. And the only way that we become a victim is by not speaking our truth. And the only way that we can become bitter, angry people, which sometimes that's being expressed too, oh, you know, they're just so angry or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, if we're the only way that we are angry or not experience our joy is if we avoid our own path of healing. Mm -hmm. And we can't experience healing if we don't face the things that our predecessors, our families generationally had to experience. If we don't face that trauma, then it stays with us. So right. Or even us. 
this generation, we are also facing those things. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this sort of story hasn't stopped for you and for me. My poem was written last year. This incident happened last year. And even though your story is about you in primary school, I'm sure even when people hear your name now, if you use those out and especially in the corporate setting, I'm sure you still get those looks like, huh? Yeah, or people not trying, people wanting to somehow change your name to an easier pronunciation or something that they're used to. So we still face that. And as you said, this version of America is a deliberate formation, as same as the narrative, a current narrative of America, of Americanism, is a deliberate narrative because there's underrepresentation of communities that are non European non-white European. So the shaping of the narrative still is in effect. It is still happening, though more and more people can be if they choose to be more aware of what's going on. Because more people of diverse communities are coming out and speaking about their own experiences. And so we get a diversity of voice. And this is why representation is so important, because when you only have certain representations of certain segment of the population, it becomes a stereotype. And you have very few representations of certain population demographics, again, that fosters stereotyping. So it's really important that not just that we speak out, but also that our voices are being carried into the mainstream. That's a really good point. What do you think are some good ways to create that process, to get our voices carried into the mainstream? I feel like it is happening slowly because minority groups have gone into mainstream industries, particularly I'm thinking about entertainment industries, and where they're now occupying positions where they have the power to greenlight certain projects. And then also from allies who are recognizing this lack, recognizing that and active decision-making, active choices need to be taken in order to bring representation to the fore. This actor who, who's basically building a mini Hollywood in Detroit, but he's bringing about, he's investing in a lot of films that are minority-made films. Ironically, things like foreign investment in filmmaking, like when China is making investment into American films because Hollywood is looking for money in China, because China has become rich. I've noticed the difference in terms of representation, that there are more Asian characters. And we just saw the Crazy Rich Asian movie, that after 25 years of not having any notable, large-scale Asian voices, all Asian casts, most of the Asian cast, now we have this film. But I'm hoping that we don't have to wait another 25 years for that to happen again. And the Latinx community, Univision has become such a large stakeholder, I think, in that demographic that other entertainment groups are looking for collaborative projects now. So that, in a way, we did bring it, both from within the established entertainment industry as well as from the outside, and sometimes not even deliberately. So I, I think it's happening, but it needs to happen more. It needs to be more deliberate rather than accidental. And people who think of themselves as liberal, I feel like they need to look at their own actions. They need to look at 
the projects they're greenlighting, are they doing a token minority project? Do they only have token minority friends? Right. Do commercials only have a token part for minority groups, and that's not a speaking part? Or even if it's a speaking part, it's only a token. What is it? Because we can't keep looking at tokenism and say, well, that's enough, because it isn't. We're not tokens. There are more non-white people in the world. Yeah, we're not <laughs> just there to provide comedic relief and little quips here and there. Yeah, or be the fall guy, fall girl, be the friend who has no speaking voice. I remember Sex and the City. There was one, I forget which episode it was. It was Carrie walking with a friend, and there was an Asian, I forget if she was African American, what. But she didn't have a speaking role, even though she was walking with them, right? But she right. didn't get a speaking part. She was there to just provide that liberal facade to the show. And we have to think about a huge popular show like Friends. I think the most exotic person was probably, what's her name? Who played Rachel, who's Greek. Jennifer um, Aniston. Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. She was probably the most exotic I guess uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's it kind is of very... unbelievable. And this right. was, what, 90s? Yeah, it's true. All my favorite shows from the 90s. Basically all white casts. Yeah, yeah. There are still shows like that. I mean, but they bring in minority voice. But it's only a token. Again, it's like, oh, we only have room for one. And everybody has to fight for that one. Everybody who's not white have to fight for that one voice. And that's not right. There needs to be more deliberate choices made. And we need to sometimes force that choice to be made. We need to just say, okay, I like the show's premise. I don't like that you're not representing me. I'm not going to watch it. I'm going to, in some ways, deprive myself of this entertainment until you show me that you care about me. And it's, it's difficult. Yeah, it is very difficult. I think... Uh... John Leguizamo, whenever he talks about those type of issues, he, he does it in a comical way, but it's also really striking way where he makes this point, like, why aren't we being represented? Right. And we don't see him in too many mainstream projects. He's a self-made man in many ways, and he's had to do his one-man shows. And sometimes when I'm watching his one-man shows, and I'm wondering, is this decision purely because you want to do a one-man show, or is it because somehow you are deprived of other outlets for your talent. And, you know, you can see how talented the man is. Right. So it's interesting to look at all these things where we somehow have to find their own platform before we're popular enough for the mainstream to incorporate us because they want to kind of rub off some of the shine that we got for ourselves. Right, and then you see the theme, like, this is a black movie, or this is an Asian movie, but right. you don't see that in a movie that has more cultural representation. You don't see people of color being main characters very often, just like you're speaking about. Yeah, yeah, and even the costume dramas usually excuse that, you know, there weren't these people around. That's not true. This might just be speaking to my own ignorance. I didn't know the man who wrote The Three Musketeers. He's mixed African, African-European, and he in his day have faced discrimination. There is a book on him, um, which I've yet to read. I believe it's called The Black Count. And I want to know why that hasn't been turned into a movie. Because his Three Musketeers, what, like every 10 years is a remake of it. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. 
So why is his biopic not as well highlighted, not as well represented? I mean, there are so many, so many possibilities. I mean, I didn't even know that he was part African until I saw Django Unchained, and it was mentioned in like one line in that movie. And I looked it up, and I was like, "Oh wow, yes!" And he wrote so many popular novels, been、yeah. turned into movies. So Alexander. Dumas. Dumas, yes. Yeah. Thank、go. you. I know it comes to、you. me eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really frustrating to know that all these historical dramas that could be represented on so many minority groups that are not being represented, and using the excuse of oh, back then there weren't these people. No, that's not true. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, now that we've.、Uh... Let people know how we really feel. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we're concluding this interview, I wanted to ask you to tell us first of all where we can see you, where we can you know hear you read and see you read. Well, right now my my schedule is really doesn't have the flexibility to allow me to actually go to a lot of other events.、Mm-hmm. So I'm just reading right now once monthly at Pocket to Me, our open mic that we have. Mm-hmm. And trying to get back into writing, I went to school for creative writing, but I put that on the back burner to start the bookstore project that I、right. felt was vital.、Mm-hmm. And really, back in the day, a lot of writers, what they did to keep themselves reading and stay in that world was to have little bookstores.、Right. So I feel like I'm going the old school way about it instead、mm-hmm. of you know making myself get a master's degree in creative writing. Right. I have books for it, <laughs> so I have all the books I could ever want to read and research on, and that makes me really happy. But yeah, you can can find me at Pocket to Me, which is every third Saturday of the month. And then we have other events that go on as well. So every first Friday of the month, there's our event called Hosh Gallery and the Crate Creepers. Hosh Gallery is a small gallery space that we created within the bookstore. My partner Jeff Slim, who is a local artist、mm-hmm. and muralist, he curates the art that's there. So we have rotating art every month, and we have a vinyl collective of women. It's called the Crate Creepers, and they play records, a lot of hip hop, R and B, oldies, things like that. Wonderful, wonderful. Is that the vinyl creative? Is that、uh, just around? Do they have specific dates that they play at Palavas? Sometimes they get booked for events, but、mm-hmm. the place where they play consistently is at Palavas on first Friday.、So. Oh, okay.、Mm-hmm. And how do we follow you on social media? Well, I don't have anything for my poetry. Like I said, I'm just getting into that whole world. But、um, you can follow the bookstore. Palabras underscore bookstore for my Instagram, and then we're also on Facebook, Palabras Bookstore. So you can follow us and see everything that we're doing and all the stuff that I'm creating. My other side project that I'm into, I'm really into plants. So it just comes from having a mother who was really into plants, <laughs> and she was a curandera. That's what they call it, a healer in、uh, okay. Mexican culture. And so I make a lot of like herbal things,、mm-hmm. and I call my line sana sana curandera care. So like healing salves and 
sprays and all these kind of things that I make with some desert herbs and essential oils and things like that. So book lady, herb lady, writer. <laughs> great. Those are all the things. Great, great. And we can find those all out through Palabras. That's the portal, basically. That's, that's my little hub. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And if anybody wants to utilize the space for an event or workshop space, they can um, email me at info at palabrasbookstore.com. We are extremely community-centered. We like to get the community involved. And so if you wanted to do something that runs along that vein and you wanted to have a space to do it, Palabras is the perfect space for you to do it. So just let me know. Okay, great. Thank you for putting it out there. Thank you very much for your time and speaking with me about your poem and all respective poems. I really appreciate that. Thank you for um, having me on your cool podcast, Poets and Muses, and you are an awesome poet, and I always look forward to hearing your work, so thank Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I look forward to hearing your other poem. What was that between the... It was... I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> well, come to Thirst Saturday on Paul Alvarez and you will get to hear it. The book, The Black Count by Tom Vries, is actually about Alexander Dumas's father, Thomas Alexandre Dumas. Uh, the other thing is that on the show Friends, uh, at least the Gellers, Ross and Rachel Geller, uh, were Jewish. Uh, there's some speculation about Rachel being Jewish as well. Uh, Rachel Green is her last name, but there's no real definitive proof of it. In any case, thank you very much for listening. Please follow us on SoundCloud, Instagram, as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter on the upper right-hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.